This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. With us today is our contributor, Tony Domestico, and he's talking with Paul Mariani, emeritus professor of English at Boston College. Paul's the author of 20 books, including biographies of William Carlos Williams, Gerard Manley Hopkins, and Wallace Stevens. Paul's latest book of poetry is All That Will Be New. Tony's conversation with Paul is coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Tony Domestico. Thanks for being with us on the Commonweal Podcast. Hey, Dominic. Thanks for having me. So you got to talk to Paul Mariani. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your conversation? Yeah, so Paul Mariani is one of the great Catholic poet critics of the last half century or so. He is 82 years old and he just published his ninth collection of poetry. And we talked about that collection. It's a deeply reflective, kind of memory-rich collection. And he talked about working on biographies of William Carlos Williams and other figures over the years, and also what those poets have meant to him, what they mean now. And also we talked a bit about the challenges of writing poetry, not just during the time of COVID, but actually about the experience of COVID. So it was a really rich conversation about the trajectory of his intellectual and spiritual life and also what he's been going through over the last few years. Okay, great. Let's take a listen. Welcome to the Commonwealth Podcast, Paul Mariani. All That Will Be New is your ninth collection of poetry. In one poem, you write that you're on your final journey. And there's a valedictory feel to much of collection, poem after poem, You look back and you remember, you remember your own life growing up on New York's East Side and Long Island. You remember the life of your parents and your grandparents who came over from Italy. You remember the poets who've meant a great deal to you. So you open the collection with an epigraph from Dante's Purgatorio. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that choice. So why Dante, what that selection has to do with memory and how you see memory working in this collection more generally. Yes, Tony, I'm going to read those lines, right? This is Purgatorio 28 and we're moving from Purgatory. We're going to cross over now. And this is what so many of the poems are crossing over to the next stage. And the hope here is this. On this side, it descends with power to end one's memory of sin. And on the other, it can restore recall of each good deed. To one side, it is lethal. On the other, you know he. Neither stream is efficacious unless the other's waters have been tasted. Their savor is above all other sweetness. And so there's a sense in which the poet, myself, desires to forget failings as much as possible, to wipe them away, although the poem, of course, is what brings those things back, of course. But there's this sense that at some point that can all fade and that what one's good deeds are, what one attempted to to do that was right will remain. So I suppose that's my hope. That's what I was starting out with. 
in this ninth collection written in my early 80s. Dante means so much to me, Tony. Here's Alan Mandelbaum, the great, one of the great translators of Dante. And Dante is a Catholic poet who's gone to hell and the purgatory, the sense of the struggle upward, and then finally the reward, the vision, the paradiso. This has been so central to my own life as a Catholic and as a poet. I keep coming back to Dante over and over again. There's no way around it for me. Yeah. Yeah. And so you can see from that epigraph and from your response there that this poem, this collection really is in conversation with the poets who've meant a great deal to you over the course of your, of your long career. In addition to being a superb poet, you're a superb literary biographer and you've written full-length biographies of a number of poets, including Robert Lowell, Gerard Manley Hopkins, Wallace Stevens, but also William Carlos Williams. And Williams is a really important figure for this collection. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what drew you to Williams initially, um, and also what, what Williams has meant to you over the course of your career and what he means to this collection specifically. Yeah, Tony, this goes way back. When I first discovered William Carlos Williams was back in the 60s. When I was working uh, on my PhD, and this is just a few years after Williams himself had passed, and I remember going into a bookstore in Flushing, Long Island, and uh, I saw a book that said Patterson, and I couldn't believe it because my own family, my mom's family, is from the Patterson area, and as a boy. I would climb up under the fence and look down at the, at the Great Falls in Patterson. So that was the start. And then I, I had been studying Victorian literature, but Williams turned me to the American idiom. And I thought, wow, here's someone from New Jersey. I'm from New York, Long Island, with relatives in New Jersey. And his idiom, his way of speaking, of taking the language and lifting it into the poem has always fascinated me right from the beginning. And so what you, I think what you'll find in my poetry is an attempt at the American idiot, a living voice, but also one that has been deeply enculturated with, with the poets, with the painters, with the musicians. And it's an attempt coming from a working class background, Tony, to keep that idiom there. That's who I am but also to speak to an audience that I'm informed with the voices of so many, so many poets that have influenced me, moved me, shaped me. Tony, six, I did six biographies. I, 40 years I spent writing biography, 40 years. And it's a lot of work, Tony. We do an 800-page biography of Williams, for example. And a lot of research, a lot of listening to relatives of William Carlos Williams, patients of William Carlos Williams, friends, other poets like Robert Creeley and many others, Allen Ginsberg, who were shaped by Williams. And then to bring that into the dialogue of what I'm trying to do in my own poetry. So Williams has remained a constant. And in a way that works with Dante as well, because Dante is using the Italian idiom. He's not writing, he's not writing in Latin. He's writing in the Vulgate. He's writing it in Italian. And here's Williams writing in the American idiom. 
And that's been very, very important to me. Yeah. Yeah. And the title of the collection, All That Will Be New, comes from a beautiful prose piece by William Carlos Williams in The American Grain. Could you talk a little bit about that piece and also especially the completion of the title, right? All That Will Be New in the World Will Be Anti-Puritan. Right. That's the line from Williams's essay. So what his anti what his sense of American as an anti-Puritan uh, yeah. has to do with your own project. There's so many. Uh, the, the other thing about uh, Williams that really deeply influences me uh, that I keep coming back to is who he was as a mensch. OK, who he was as a human being, Tony. He is a doctor working with the black uh, community, Jewish community. Uh, Italian immigrant community, all of those people from the Rutherford Garfield area. And he writes about them and he writes, he's learning so much from his patients as well. And the, you know, Tony, there's a sense, one story quickly here. I once uh, interviewed a druggist in Patterson who had worked with Williams. So what Williams would do is he would have patients come into his office. And then he would write out a prescription and there would be a little code at the top of the prescription. And essentially what the code said was, I did not charge these patients. And then the druggist seeing that code will not charge them for the, just little gestures like that yeah. means so much. Robert Coles also is when he was writing as a young doctor, bring a Williams, for example, going house to house in the winter. And one woman, an older woman, uh, who had a serious cold and Williams going in and giving her the prescription, getting her warm, and then realizing that the room was cold, goes down into the basement and starts a fire, cold fire for her. So she'll be warm as well. It's things like that, 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 that touch me very deeply. Yeah. And I think in the biography that you wrote of Williams and in the poems about Williams in this new collection, you so clearly admire his attentiveness to others' suffering, right? Exactly. His attentiveness to the language of others, right? And that, that anecdote that you related about writing in code to let the druggist know not to charge the patient, that it is present in, in a poem that you write, Williams's Patterson, those years ago. And you can see the, bio, the biographical research you've done feeding into the poetry. But I was hoping for our listeners, you could read another poem from the collection that is maybe in quieter conversation with Williams, but still in conversation with Williams nonetheless. And that's the poem Snow Moon Over Singer Island. Yes, Tony. My wife and I spent a month down in Florida a couple, just before the COVID breakout. And uh, we were on Singer Island. We had a room up on the 13th, they don't call it the 13th floor, the 14th floor in the, in, in the building. And I looked out one night and there's this beautiful full moon floating with the clouds floating past it. And it just deeply, just deeply struck me. So I'm going to read the poem. Black velvet darkness, tufts of clouds heading slowly up the beach. The February snow moon like the host the priest raises, shining now along the solemn coast, transfiguring the Atlantic waters down below. 
I sat there transfixed, as if for once at peace with what I had the sense this time around to see. The things that all my life have ground me down at last, drifting off to the east, northeast. But what word can net what one feels in these two brief moments? Grasshopper transcendence, the poet called it. Those translucent wings whirring up into the Sunday light before the shouts of strangers force their entry like so deep. Show us a sign, we say. Show us what we think we want to see. Though do we even know what such a sign would be? Or is the blessed thing already there before us, you and me, and all we really need to see it are the eyes to see? Tony, there's a phrase in there, grasshopper transcendence, and of course, that's, that's taken right from William Carlos Williams as he's in Patterson, in the same fields that my brother and I walked as a boy on Garrett Mountain. And there's this moment where he's in the spring where Williams sees the, the grasshoppers fly up and the, their wings extended, and suddenly the sun breaks through the wings and just transforms it, and then they're gone. Is this moment of grace, this moment of translucency, and then it's gone. And it seems to me that for most of us, if we're lucky, that's what we get. We get these moments, and then we come back into the quotidian again. And then perhaps down the line, we hope there'll be more of these translucent moments. Yeah, and that, that lovely phrase from Williams, grasshopper transcendence seems to resonate with your sense of in this poem in in particular you know the priest raising like the host the priest raises shining now along the solemn coast transfiguring the atlantic water the presence in this poem and across your poems of a kind of sacramental sense of poetry and a kind of sacramental sense of perception and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how you see sacrament in poetry relating to one another in this poem or more generally in your thinking. Yeah, Tony, I think that's really at the very core of who I am as a poet, that, that sense of transcendence, that sense of, do we actually see what's right in front of us? You know, so often as Dante says also, our eyes are cast down when there's all this beauty around us. And it's just, what the poet I think needs to do is to make the reader aware of what's right there in front of them. Do you see it? Do you actually see it? It's something my wife is continually saying to me. Do you see what's right in front of you, Paul? Do you see the beauty of this moment? And if you do see, when you do see it, praise, thanks, thanksgiving to God, who's there, Lee? Uh, and it's us who just need to lift it, even in the, obviously in the dark times as well. This is a dark night at the down in Singer Island. And there's this moment of this intense light right there in front of us. And it reminds me, for me, as a Catholic, of that transfiguring moment where bread, just bread, a piece of bread is transformed. This is what Christ had promised us on that Holy Thursday, 
as he was leaving us. This is what I will leave behind for you. This is, and it's not just a symbol, as Bonnie O'Connor says. It was just a symbol. I'd say the hell with it. <laughs> this is the real thing. This is the real presence. And when you feel that, it just, it gives you consolation. It gives you hope. And that's what I, as I get older, I, you know, try to show to others. We'll be right back with more of Tony's conversation with Paul Mariani. Is the Spirit leading you to discover your unique mission in the world? At the Franciscan School of Theology at the University of San Diego, continue to deepen your faith journey and discover your unique role in caring for our world and the Catholic Church with rigorous master's programs led by world-class scholars. FST's courses and lectures dive deep into the heart of Franciscan spirituality, theology, and social thought, integrating the Catholic faith and the Franciscan vision of civic life and church leadership. The Franciscan School of Theology offers three on-campus degrees, the Master of Theological Studies, the Master of Divinity, and Master of Arts, and an online degree, the Master of Theological Studies, with a specialization in Franciscan theology. Learn to put theology to work in the world at FST. Find true and perfect joy. Visit fst.edu for more information and to start your application today. Yeah, I love that idea that poetry in part exists to attune us to the real, which is the beautiful, right? They're, they're not antithetical. They're, they are one and the same, right? The real and the beautiful are one, and the poet, the poem exists to reveal that to us, however fleetingly. Yeah, and, and one poet, it seems to me, who does a, a wonderful job of attuning us in that way. And, and I, who I know is very important to you is Hopkins. And I was wondering if you could talk a, a little bit about how Hopkins has allowed you to see what is really there. Oh, my dear Hopkins. I, I was a senior at Manhattan college back in 62 when, uh, I was given an assignment. My assignment was WBH. But I had an Irish fraternity brother who said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you two beers if you let me do Yates and you can do this fellow named Hopkins. <laughs> I said, okay, you got it. And it's a funny way to start, but I started reading Hopkins, The Wreck of the Deutschland and the Sonnets. And I, oh my gosh, I said, oh my gosh, I'm looking for, I'm a Catholic kid from New York, working class background. And look at this poet. Look at what he's done with the language. And in his own lifetime, he published virtually nothing. And it took 30 years for his friend Robert Bridges to bring out the first volume. And these poems are so incredibly moving. They're so filled with glory be to God for dappled things. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. I caught this morning. Morning's minion, kingdom of daylight, stop and dapple dawn, drawn falcon in his riding of the rolling level underneath him steady. I mean, look at the language, Tony. It just lifts you up. And then the dark sun, when he was stationed, when he was sent to Dublin, the only English Jesuit in Dublin at a time, growing nationalism, and he feels like a stranger. And he writes these dark sonnets that are so absolutely captivating and which 
get us have gotten me through so many very dark moments. I lay wrestling with God. The alien limits of God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God has not forsaken us, but because that's what the psalm itself shows us. So Hopkins, at the deepest level, it's been Father Hopkins who has gotten me through that I, that's been with me all those years. Williams, yes. Dante, yes. But I think it, Hopkins is the one who made me go on to get a PhD in English and in Victorian literature so that I could do Hopkins. And I did my dissertation, my first book on Father Hopkins. And then another biography 30 years down the line. Yeah. And I, I forget where I read this, but you have a great memory of reading the wreck of the Deutschland to your son, Paul, when he was a baby, who, who has ended up himself becoming a Jesuit priest. Here he is, my Jesuit son who teaches Chinese out at Santa Clara. But there he is as a little baby in the cradle, and I'm studying and I'm reading him the wreck of the Deutschland. <laughs> His eyes are just popping. <laughs> so be careful what you read your kids. <laughs> um, but I, I think I think our listeners will be able to get us a sense from these poems and from our conversation about how important, well, your years-long conversation with Hopkins and Williams and other poets is to this collection. One striking feature of All That Will Be New also, though, is how constantly you're in conversation with visual art. Right. There are a number of poems in this collection that are acrastic poems, right? Poems that respond to paintings. You have a poem, the first poem responds to a painting by Winslow Palmer. You have other poems that respond to Van Gogh, Caravaggio. And I was wondering what, what drew you to this particular mode here? How, why did you feel yourself so consistently describing and then talking back to paintings at this moment in your life? You know, Tony, throughout my nine volumes of poetry, you will find other ecrastic poems, but not as many, Tony, as you do here. That's for sure. Part of it was the lockdown, Tony, that I was home and could evoke images. I've, I've always been, I was a cartoonist when I was in, in, in high school. And so I loved to draw and my son, Mark has, Mark has done the same kind of thing. So painting, every, whenever Eileen and I get a chance to go to a museum to see a collection, we go. Of course, that was cut back again by, by COVID. So I would go to the paintings and if they struck me, I said, okay, now I'm in dialogue with this painting. How can I bring what Caravaggio, for example, was trying to do at Emmaus or what uh, Picasso does with all those symbols that are Catholic symbols in Guernica, for example, or Paul Favet, a little girl with her eyes looking at you. And then you pick up right there in the, in the parking lot at Our Lady at Peace Church on a cold day in January. And this woman that whose father had been a close friend of mine, he passed, telling me with tears in her eyes about difficulties she was having with her own family. And that image plus the image of little, this little girl just struck me and it, boom, then it goes off into a poem. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you mentioned that the visual had a particular power for you in part during COVID, right? Because you were isolated. And one of the the striking features of this collection is that at various moments, you try to wrestle into poetic form what you describe as the COVID boogie, right? The experience of debates about mask policy and loneliness of isolation. And I was wondering what, what was writing about this strange historical moment from within that historical moment? Because if I presumably you're writing these poems, right? We're still in the midst of COVID, right? It's not over. You're writing these poems from within this historical moment, which is quite different from the other kinds of historical poems you have in this collection. You have a lovely memory of walking through Harlem the day after Malcolm X's assassination, um, a really powerful poem. But that's very different from trying to write about history when it's happening. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, here it is. It's all around us. And I'm saying, okay, how do I deal with it? And I remember certain images, for example, the motorcyclists gathering in the time of COVID. So they, and they were saying, hey, the hell with it. It's not going to affect me. Death isn't going to affect me. Illness isn't going to affect me. And, and it does. So the kind of madness on the public voice as well, if I may say this in the sense of the former President Trump just downplaying it as just a little bit of a cold, don't worry about it. Meanwhile, I'm losing my friends from it. So how, how do you write about this, uh, write about this thing, the insanity of it? And so I, I wrote it with a kind of satire in part, a way of punching back at what the COVID was, was doing. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a final question before I thought we could end with one more of your poems. So you opened your previous book of prose, I mentioned before, The Mystery of It All, by saying that you regularly asked yourself while your friends passed away and you felt yourself moving towards the end, am I any closer to a resolution, right? That was the question that you had. And I'm wondering how you'd answer that question now in what role with any writing this collection has played in you feeling that you have come any closer to a resolution or have thought differently about what a resolution might look like for you as, as a poet, as a believer. Um, yeah. It's a great question, Tony. I'm, let me read a poem that tries to resolve it because the issues that you just raised are the ones that were very much in my mind and it's a quote supper at Emmaus and it's the final poem and it's based on Caravaggio. Now, I can identify with Caravaggio. He went through it all. He saw himself as a sinner. He saw himself as a, someone in opposition to, to Christ. He was, a, he was being chased all over the country by various the Knights of Malta. He, it's a tough life what, he, what Caravaggio went through. But there, there were two paintings he did towards the end of his life of Supper at Emmaus. And both of those images, one in which Christ is a young man with no beard, clean shaven. And it's that moment when he breaks the bread. The second one, he's, 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 he's weary. He looks like someone who was just recovered from COVID, recovered from death. And he's blessing the bread again. And that image of just breaking bread, which is, it means so much to me to break yourself, Tony, to break, 
he broke himself. So how can I break myself? How can I share myself with others with words? So here it is. And, you know, the thing about Caravaggio is, you know, when he, call, when he calls St. Matthew, it's that hand that extends. It's, it's that hand reaching out. And I want to grab that hand. I want to grab that hand. And there's that hand again, reaching out this time to bless the bread that's been set before him on the table. It's a small loaf, really, just a roll. And it's been broken, much as his body was three days before. To his left is a pewter pitcher with black lines striped across it, and a glass half-hidden, filled with blood-red wine. He must be real, this Nazarene, because you can see his shadow on the worn leather jacket the old innkeeper's wearing who's gazing down at the stranger as he wonders what's going on. In the foreground seated are two disciples. One is Cleopas. The other, strangely, looks like Peter, at least from other portraits Caravaggio painted of the man. The same disciple who denied Christ three times out there in the courtyard and who now seems to inch his right hand close and closer to Christ's wrist, as if to check if this could really be the man. In the upper right stands an old woman, bent and weary from the daily chores she's done so long that nothing seems to faze her anymore. So that as the man breaks bread as an offering of himself, we cannot read what it is she's thinking. And here's the thing. There's another version of this same scene, which Caravaggio painted five years earlier. In this one, Christ appears clean-shaven and is so much younger, which may be why the men failed at first to recognize this stranger who had walked beside them. But look at what the painters rendered. There's a glass carafe of wine, a bowl of fruit, and a roasted capon on the table. A Sunday feast for sure. And once again, an innkeeper stands looking down, puzzled as this stranger blesses the bread, then breaks it. Even as those two disciples are clearly shaken, perhaps like us as well, by what is really happening here before Arana's. Thank you for that, Paul. You asked, how can I share myself with words? Well, thank you for sharing those words with us today. Thank you for sharing the words of your poems and your scholarship and your essays over the decades. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much, Tony, for this privilege today to speak with you as well. Paul Mariani's latest book of poetry is called All That Will Be New, and it's available now from Slant Press. Paul has also written for Commonweal, including a profile on John Berryman. You can find that on our website. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. 
The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.